The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the third chapter and reading from verse 9 to verse 13, from the ninth to the thirteenth verse in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Men which is in heaven. We continue, in other words, our study of this great third chapter of the Gospel according to John. And we are doing so for some very good and very definite reasons. The first is, and if we had no other, this is sufficient in and of itself. We have the advantage in this particular chapter here, that as we are looking at it, of watching and observing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself dealing with a soul. Here the Lord himself acts as the evangelist. And nothing is more important for us, surely, than to observe his method. This is the supreme method and example. And here we watch him as he deals with this man, Nicodemus, who came to him seeking that interview by night as the result of having watched him performing his miracles while he was up in Jerusalem. There is no more important subject than this. How to help one another, how to evangelize, how to deal with a soul. Then secondly, as I have been emphasizing on previous Sunday evenings, this subject is of importance because what our Lord is dealing with here is our eternal destiny. And that is, do you see, what makes a service like this again this evening so different from every kind of meeting that the world ever holds. You and I, my friends, tonight are concerned not only about time, but about eternity. That's why the faith is more important than history or music or art or any one of those things. That's not to detract from them, but it's to show the supreme importance of this. Here we are looking at something that claims that it's going to decide and determine our eternal destiny. And that is determined by this, as to whether we are or are not in the kingdom of God. That is the theme with which our Lord deals as here he speaks to this man Nicodemus. And uh, another good reason for coming back to it and for spending time with it like this is this. That as you read the history of preaching and of the church, you will find that this particular incident of our Lord's dealing with Nicodemus 
has been used so frequently in bringing people into a knowledge of truth, in bringing men and women out of darkness into light, in leading people to see the way of salvation and enabling them to embrace it. God the Holy Spirit has used this passage, I say, so frequently that one likes to tarry with it and to spend a great deal of time in it, trusting that what he has done so often in ages past, he will still uh, continue to do. Now then, you remember that Nicodemus goes to our Lord and begins to speak, saying, Master, it's obvious that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And... But suddenly our Lord interrupts him and says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we've been realizing as we've studied it that our Lord did that and interrupted him in that way in order to shock him. That was his method, you see, with this sort of men. The previous chapter has told us that our Lord knows all men. We are told that he needed not that any should testify of men, for he knew what was in men. So that as Nicodemus came to him, he could read him as an open book, as we saw he'd done previously in the case of Nathaniel and Peter and all others, and he knew all about it. He knew his mentality, he knew his outlook, and he knew therefore how to deal with him. Here is a master in Israel. Here is a a man with a mind, a man of understanding, a man of culture, and a highly moral and religious man. And that's how our Lord deals with him. To shock him. Why? Well, because he's got to realize that his whole approach is wrong. And we can never say this too frequently. Most people are in trouble about Christianity because their approach is wrong. They don't go wrong in details. It's their total approach that's wrong. And because of that, of course, it's a waste of time to discuss details with them. Nothing is more important than this approach. Our Lord himself brings out that point. That's why he handles Nicodemus like this. He pulls him up. He stuns him, as it were, and shocks him in order to bring him to see that. And so he goes on to tell him. Nicodemus, if you really want to enter this kingdom... You've got to repent. You must be born of water. You've heard of the ministry of John the Baptist, and you know how people have been crowding to him to be baptized. Did you go? Why didn't you go? It's essential. There must be repentance. Whatever you are, whoever you are, you've got to confess and acknowledge your sins. You've got to cast yourself helpless before God and leave yourself to it. You must be born of water. You must repent. But not only that, you need a new understanding altogether. You must be born of water and of the Spirit. So we spent our time last Sunday night in considering what the biblical teaching is about this rebirth. This great mystery, marvel, miracle of regeneration. The operation of God upon the soul. How necessary it is we should know this. So many think they can make themselves Christian. Holding certain views, living a good life, not doing this, doing that, that makes you Christian. No, no. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. A mighty act by the Spirit of God must be worked down in the very depths and vitals of the personality. And a man must have a new outlook, a new mind, a new heart. 
a new will, a new everything. He must become a new creation. Well, we've gone into that. But still, you see, Nicodemus still doesn't understand. And our Lord has put it so plainly to him. He's used that wonderful picture about the wind. Look here, said our Lord to Nicodemus, don't waste your time in trying to understand in this way. What I'm talking about is is something that is comparable to the well-known phenomenon of the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. But alas, Nicodemus still says, How can these things be? He's baffled, he's bewildered, he's still trying to understand it all. Well, our Lord therefore has to continue his instruction of him. He has to continue his discussion with him. And now it's clear that our Lord feels that he must become still more specific. Because obviously... Nicodemus is still not under conviction. Nicodemus is still standing on his feet, erect as it were, and still putting himself against this person to whom he's speaking. He hasn't gone down. He certainly hasn't repented. He's not convicted. He hasn't become as a little child. And our Lord says, except he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom. But Nicodemus is still the full-grown man, standing erect, pitting his mind against the mind of this person to whom he's speaking. So our Lord sees that it's essential to convict him still further. And what we've got in this passage we're looking at this evening are the further steps in the process of conviction. And uh, what applied uh, to Nicodemus still applies today. Am I addressing someone who has never seen the necessity of the new birth? Am I speaking to someone who says with Nicodemus, what is all this? How can these things be? What do you mean by the operation of the Holy Spirit? What do you mean by saying that I must be born again? Surely that's asking me to commit intellectual suicide. Surely that's asking me to become a fool. Surely that's asking me to abandon and jettison my intellect and just give rein to my feelings and my passions and my emotions. I can't see that. How can these things be? Very well. If that is your position, I beg of you, I plead with you to listen to what our Lord went on to say to this man, Nicodemus. Let me say at once, here's a man who must of necessity draw out our admiration in spite of his stumbling. He was a noble man in every sense of the word. And as I say, a man of learning, a master of Israel. And a highly moral and religious person. That's why our Lord takes all this trouble with him. What does he say to him? What does he say to all such men? Shall I summarize it by putting it in the form of three principles to you? Here is the first. The first essential, before we can even begin to see that kingdom of God. The first essential is a realization of our utter, our total inability. Oh, I must repeat that because it's such a vital principle. There is no hope whatsoever of anybody ever becoming a Christian 
unless and until he realizes his utter, his complete and total inability with these things. Now listen to our Lord saying it. Jesus answered and said unto him, verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel? And knowest not these things? There are those who say it should be translated like this. Art thou the master of Israel? And knowest not these things? In other words, our Lord looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you're a very famous teacher. You are acknowledged and recognized as the master of Israel. The master. Outstanding teacher. Whose name is on the lips of all. And to whom people crowd to listen and to hear the instruction. The master of Israel. Art thou the master of Israel and knowest not these things? And yet, isn't it not, is it not perfectly plain and clear that he did not understand and admits it by asking his question, how can these things be? Here is a man being instructed by the Son of God. He puts the truth plainly to him. He puts it in picture and parable, and still the master doesn't see it. What's the matter with him? Well, there's only one thing to say about him. He's blind. He's spiritually blind. He's spiritually incapable. He has no spiritual understanding, no spiritual insight. And now, my friends, this is what the Bible says of all of us by nature. The whole case which is put by the New Testament gospel is just this. That we are all born into this world spiritually blind. We are not all men who have the vision and the faculty divine. No, no. We are born in darkness. The natural man understandeth, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he, because they are spiritually discerned. The Apostle Paul, again in writing to the Corinthians in that first epistle, says, Ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It was the truth. It was the fact. Why? Well, because they lack a spiritual understanding. Mankind, the whole of mankind by nature, is blind. And look at it, exemplified in this man above all men, this outstanding teacher of Israel, this expert in the Old Testament literature. This man whose whole business was to instruct people in a knowledge of God and a worship of God. When the great central truth is put before him, he doesn't see it. He stumbles, he's baffled, and he asks his question. That was his trouble. He was spiritually blind. He lacked a spiritual understanding. He doesn't see that his whole position is wrong. He doesn't realize that his whole nature is wrong. The first thing that a man's got to realize, he cannot see. He can't get at it. He's somehow blinded against this. And he's offended by it. And he keeps on putting his questions. There is only one explanation of this. It is, I say, 
a condition and a state of spiritual blindness and spiritual impotence, a complete lack of understanding. Now that is the whole tragedy of the world, that men may be very able and very gifted. They may understand many, many matters, but when you come to this, it's a closed book for them. They see the letter but miss the spirit. They read the words, they don't get the meaning. And you put it plainly to them and they stand back with Nicodemus and they say, how can these things be? Now then, our Lord now goes on to particularize still more and puts it like this. Did you notice this extraordinary statement? If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What's he mean by this? Well, here you see he is carrying on the argument and he's advancing. What he meant was this. Nicodemus, you still don't see why this new birth is an utter absolute necessity. Let me show you why it is. I've put earthly things to you. And you can't see them. You can't believe them. You can't receive them. What are you going to be like if I put heavenly things to you? What does he mean? What are these earthly things about which he's speaking? Well, obviously, he is referring to the things that he has already been saying to Nicodemus. If I have told you earthly things, what are they? Well, all his teaching about the rebirth, about regeneration, about being born again, about being born of water and of the Spirit. Well, is that something earthly, says someone? Well, according to our Lord, it is. How do you explain it? Well, let me explain it in this way. All that our Lord has been saying so far to Nicodemus, while it is spiritual truth, is in a sense earthly truth in this way. That he was there talking about something that, after all, happens on earth. Something that can be seen happening in the lives of men and women. Earthly things. Let me put it in this form. Nicodemus should not have stumbled at this teaching. As a master of Israel and as one who was familiar with the Old Testament literature, he should have known something about this. He was a man who'd often read the 51st Psalm. And he had often taught it and expounded it to others, and yet he'd obviously never understood it. Because what David cries out for in the 51st Psalm is this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David, the king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, that's what he wants. Why did he need it? Well, he'd fallen into that terrible sin. He first was an adulterer and then a murderer on top of it. And at last he awakens to the fact that he's unclean within and that he can't put himself right. Wash me with hyssop. Cleanse me, he says. Create within me a clean heart. Give me, he says, a new spirit. Thou, he says to God in his prayer, in his agony of prayer, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. David had seen it. You know the doctrine of the rebirth is not a New Testament doctrine only. It's there in the Old Testament. It belongs to what you've already got, says our Lord to Nicodemus. 
And you are without any excuse whatsoever. I've been talking earthly things to you. But not only is it there in the 51st Psalm, let me give you one other example of it. It's there in a very great and glorious passage in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, where God addressing the nation said, you're in trouble, you're in the captivity of Babylon, you're in a mess, you're in a horrible position. What can be done about you? Well, he says, you can do nothing, but I'm going to do it. And what I'm going to do for you is this. I'm going to take out of you that heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. What a marvelous statement of this doctrine of the rebirth. And not only that, he says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to give you a new spirit, my own spirit, I'm going to put within you, in your inward parts. That's the doctrine of the rebirth. It's there in the prophet Ezekiel. And of course, this master of Israel, this great teacher, was so familiar with it and he'd often taught it. And yet when our Lord puts it to him, he doesn't, he says, how can these things be? Nicodemus says, our Lord, I've met you on your own level. I've met you on the very things that you know all about. I've talked to you about things on which you're an expert. And if you don't understand them, well, in the name of God, what are you going to do when I tell you about the heavenly things? Earthly things. Earthly in that sense, but not only in that sense. These can be described as earthly things in another sense. In this way. This uh, whole matter of the new birth is something, surely, with which we are all as human beings uh, familiar as the result of reading books and as the result of reading biographies. I mean by that that if you're not a Christian, you've come across this. You see, it can be described, therefore, as earthly. You may not be a Christian tonight, but I'm quite sure that you've heard about Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. You've read of how that man at one time was a hater and a persecutor of the Christian church. But then you know him as the Apostle Paul, the great preacher, evangelist, the writer of these magnificent epistles. What happened to him? Well, you say it's obvious. He underwent some tremendous change. His whole life was revolutionized. He seems to have been regenerated. He's become a different and a new man. Well, you're familiar with that. It's an earthly thing. Not only that, you've heard of the great Saint Augustine. And you've known how at one time, though he was a brilliant philosopher, he lived that voluptuous, sinful, immoral life. And then, how later he became this great doctor in the church with his mighty teaching that has come down and persisted even till today. What was it? You know the story. There he is sitting in the agony of his mind and his heart in the garden trying to find peace, fighting against this conviction, and yet the lust and the desire, not able to resolve it. And there he suddenly hears a voice coming and saying, rise and read. A little child was saying it. And he got up and he went and he opened the Bible at the 13th chapter of the epistle to the Romans and that tremendous passage, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness. The night is far spent. The day is at hand, and in a flash his eyes were opened, and the immoral philosopher became the holy saint in the church of God. You all know about that. That's a part of secular history by tonight. 
It's common knowledge. Everybody knows that there is this phenomenon. It's an earthly thing. Our Lord has been teaching him earthly things. Well, I could go on multiplying my examples and illustrations. Let me leave it at that, but let me put it thirdly like this. I imagine that there is no one in this congregation who has not at some time or another met actually in life and in experience a person to whom this sort of thing has happened. You've known people or have heard of them at any rate, first hand probably, who once were the hopeless victims of sin and who had done everything they could and whose families had done all they could but of no avail. And then you heard that everything was different. The man had become a new man. It's happened to men and women within your knowledge, within your experience. You've met it. Well, I say, this is something earthly. This is something, as any rate, which seems to be on our level. Let me put it very generally like this. That this phenomenon of conversion is a fact which is familiar to people who are not Christian. The psychologists write their books about it. They're interested in it as a phenomenon to examine. You see, it's a fact of history that some of the great things in the world have been the result of this tremendous climactic change that have taken place in people's experiences. So it's a part of philosophy. It's a part of psychology, as it were. And men who are not Christians are interested in it. It's unearthly something. But this man stumbles at it. Though it seems to be a matter of common knowledge that when you come to talk about religion, you are entering into a realm which is different from all others. When it's put like this, they can't see it. They stumble at it. And isn't it a fact? Mustn't every man grant here tonight that there is something essentially different about religion? We know, don't we, if we take up science or art or music or whatever it may be we're interested in, well, we apply our minds and all we have to do is to apply our minds and give a certain amount of diligence and we can become masters. But everybody knows that it isn't like that in the religious life. Now, everybody knows that. You've heard of people going off into monasteries or becoming hermits and anchorites and so on. And you say, well, of course, that religious life is so different. You start by realizing that it belongs to a different kind of category of knowledge and of experience. It's common knowledge. It's earthly. And yet, though it is earthly, Nicodemus stumbled at it. And there are so many who are still stumbling at it. They're still trying to enter into the kingdom of God exactly as if they were entering into a secular occupation or as if they were trying to enter into a club or into some ethical society. They know they should know it's common knowledge that it's altogether different and yet they still try to do the other. If you don't understand the earthly, What hope is there when you come to consider and to face the heavenly? Well, what's this? What does he mean by the heavenly? If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What are the heavenly things? He goes on to tell him. I just want to take hold of the principle this evening. If you and I fail, I say, along the level that we've already been considering, 
Well then, what conceivable hope have we in the realm of heavenly things? What are these? Now, let me remind you before I describe them that our Lord in saying this and in doing this has still got one object in his mind. He is still trying to bring this man Nicodemus to see that to be born again is an absolute necessity. By putting it on that level, the earthly level, he can't see it very well, he says. If you can't see it there now, then listen to this. If you couldn't see it at that level, now then, face this level. I'm going to tell you something now about the heavenly thing. And what are these heavenly things? Well, here is the first. God himself. God You know, religion is not primarily a matter of conduct and behavior and morality. It is a knowledge of God. Theology means the knowledge of God. And the whole purpose of religion is to bring men to God. Very well, says our Lord to Nicodemus, I'm now beginning to tell you about the heavenly things. And, of course, heaven primarily means God. The character of God. The attributes of God. God is from everlasting to everlasting. God is eternal. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is without beginning or end. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He sees the end from the beginning. All things are under his hands. And in him we live and move and have our being. God! What do you know about God? We are no longer talking about the phenomenon of conversion. We're talking about God. And as this gospel has already put it, in that introduction, in the prologue, in the first chapter, no man hath seen God at any time. Are you still standing erect upon your feet? Are you still coming to Christianity with your own understanding and your own ability and your own logic? Are, are you pitting your mind? Ah, my friend, we're talking about God. And we are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you like, we are talking about the Blessed Holy Trinity. Three persons, but one God. Of the same essence, but three personalities. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three in one, the eternal blessed three in one. 
Is your understanding spanning it and grasping it with ease? Can you approach this as you approach that secular subject in which you're expert? Or that business in which you so excel? Are you still trying to? That's what we're talking about. And then, God's view of sin. God's view of man. That's what it's about. That's what the Bible is about. It's a revelation of that. It isn't man who's arrived at it, it's God revealing it. Now I say, these are the things that we're discussing. God's view of men and God's view of sin. And then we are concerned about God's terms of salvation. What does God think about a man in sin? Now I know you say, I don't think it will be fair that God should judge a man and then send him to eternal perdition. I don't. Now my friend, we're not, really, I'm sorry, I'm not wanting to be rude, but I'm not here just to discuss what you think, nor what I think. You know no more than I do, and I don't know any more than you do. We're not concerned in our own personal opinions. We are talking about God and his opinion. What do you know about God's opinion? That's the question. What is God's view of men in sin? What is God going to do about men in sin? What do you know about it, I'm asking? What a man's eternal destiny, what do you know about it? You're living in this world, you're in this chapel now, you won't be here in a hundred years' time, you'll have died, you'll be on in eternity. What's going to happen to you? What do you know about it? These are the heavenly questions. Ah, you may may know about conversion in this life, but what happened to Augustine after he died? What happened to Paul? That's the question. What do you know about? There are heavenly things. We are beyond the veil. And then God's way of dealing with men in sin and in his lost estate. Do you know anything about it? If so, where did you derive your knowledge? On what authority can you say what I believe is this, that because God is love? And how do you know that God is love? Because God is love, he's just going to forgive everybody, everybody, everything will be all right at the end. How do you know? Where do you get your information from? What's your sanction? What's your authority for what you're saying? Those are the questions. These are the heavenly things. How can a man be just with God? How can I be forgiven? How can I arrive at God and heaven? Those are the questions. They're every one of them heavenly things, heavenly questions. I ask my question once more. What do you know about these things? How can you know about these things? Tell me, have you ever ascended into heaven? Have you ever seen God? What do you really know about God? Do all your secular subjects help you to know God? Ah, so-and-so says this. Yes, it's only his theory. He doesn't know any more than you do. He says he thinks that God must be like this. Therefore, he's bigger than God himself. His God is smaller than he is. That's why he can put him on paper and say this and that. The great philosopher who can put God in a book or on a table. Monstrous. It's pure figment of imagination. He doesn't know God. He's never seen him. No man ever has. Do you by now, my dear friend, realize the futility, the utter futility of trusting yourself or your own understanding or your own ability? Don't you now see that a man must be born again? 
Can't you see that face to face with these subjects there's only one appropriate attitude for men and that is on his knees in utter confession of failure that he's baffled, that he's ignorant. He is indeed a little child. He knows nothing. The master of Israel knows no more than the biggest ignoramus in the land. Isn't it right? Can't you see it? If you couldn't see it on the earthly level, don't you see it now on the heavenly level? How can a man know about these things? What's the use of going on asking how can these things be? You and I and all mankind is not in a position to ask any questions. As we listen to this, we have but one thing to do, to put our hands upon our mouths and stop and listen. And that is precisely what our Lord invited Nicodemus to do. Listen. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Our Lord, of course, is here speaking about himself. So that my second principle is this, you see, that having seen our complete, utter inability and impotence, we are now to listen to him. We are to stop questioning and interrupting. We are just to stay and listen to him and hear what he's got to say. And he's speaking. Now we come here to what I would call the very nerve and center of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. You see, it's all a matter of authority. You and I, as we've seen, know nothing about these things. Now, I trust nobody is arguing about that. What do you know, I ask, and you know nothing? Very well, then, if we know nothing, what we need is an authority, and we are confronted by one who says, listen to me, I am the authority. The Christian message, the Christian gospel is entirely about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it say about him? Well, he tells Nicodemus the essential truth himself here in this 11th verse, in this third chapter of the gospel according to St. John. Listen to him. We speak that we do know. Who is this? Why should I listen to him? Well, that's what he says. I speak that which I know. Now, that was always his way of speaking. He doesn't say, I've come to the conclusion. He doesn't say, this is my theory, this is my idea. Having spent a lifetime in a philosophical attempt to know God, I have come to this tentative conclusion. He doesn't say, now perchance, perhaps, what if? Neither does he say, I am addressing you as the result of what I've been taught in the school and the college that has produced me. He never was in such a place. He wasn't a Pharisee, he was a carpenter. And he doesn't quote his authorities. And say, Hillel said this, Gamaliel thought that. 
And so go on quoting authorities, as the Pharisees and scribes, Nicodemus included, always did in their teaching. No, no. He just stands up and says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you, we speak that which we do know. Not a hesitation, but an absolute authority. Speaking with a certainty and an absoluteness which led a soldier sent to arrest him to say this, never men spake like this men. We know. Very well, uh, you're not prepared to listen. Here is someone who says he knows. You and I have been looking at the heavenly things and we say we know nothing. We're ignorant here, says one. A man like ourselves, he comes to us and says, we know. But then he says something still more amazing. We speak that we do know and testify that which we have seen. Seen. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the heavenly things that he's mentioning. So what he is saying, you see, is this. That he has seen God. He is talking about God and he says it's not hearsay. It's not theory. It's not second-hand information. I am speaking what I have seen. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, he has spoken about him, he has set him forth, he has led him forth, he has manifested him. How? Well, he's seen him. We want to know about God and we want to know about the mind of God. What God thinks of men, what God thinks of sin, God's way of salvation. Is there anybody who's ever seen into the mind of God? That's what I want. And here is one who says he has seen into the mind of God. He has been with God. He has spoken to God. He comes with first-hand information. Not theory. He knows. He sees. And so he testifies, which means that he witnesses. He says at the end of his life, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. He's seen it, he knows it. He's bearing witness unto it. He's testifying with respect to it. Who is this? Are we to listen to him? Are these the ravings of a madman? For he's a man, the carpenter of Nazareth, and yet this is what he says. We know, we've seen, we've testified, we testify. Who is he? How can he do it? How can a man ever know these heavenly things? Has anybody ever ascended up unto heaven? Well, listen to him. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. How does he know? What has he seen? How has he had the vision? Where does he derive his understanding? And he tells Nicodemus plainly and simply, Here is one who has come down from heaven. 
Here is not just a man who is looking up in the direction of heaven and almost giving up in despair. He says, I have come down from heaven, the great doctrine of the incarnation. Here is something that doesn't belong to us. Here is something that the psychologists and the philosophers don't understand at all. This is a heavenly thing, and this is what it says, that God, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, came out of heaven divested himself of the insignia of the everlasting glory and entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary and was born as a babe in Bethlehem and put in a manger. That's the heavenly business. He's come down from heaven. He was with the Father in the bosom of the Father. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God in the bosom of the Father speaking to God, sharing his secrets Seeing him, loving him, enjoying him, but he's come down to us. He's God as well as men. God, men. The son of men. A new men. A new humanity. The beginner of a new race. He's not one amongst men who's reached a little further in his religious quest. And in his philosophic endeavor, no, no, there's never been anybody like him. He is the Son of Man, stands alone in a category apart. The firstborn of many brethren, God in the flesh, incarnation, the coming of the eternal Son into the world and into time in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's what he says to Nicodemus. And that is the message of the gospel this evening. You and I need to know God and know how to be reconciled to him and how to be blessed by him. And my dear friend, there is only one who can give you any light at all on these great and vital and eternal questions. It is the Son of God himself. That is Christianity. And that is the uniqueness of Christianity. Every other religion is man's attempt to find and to discover God. Here God himself has sent out his own Son into the world in the form of a man in order to give us the light and in order to rescue and to redeem us. And there is only one thing to do. It is to do the opposite of what he tells Nicodemus that he, Nicodemus, had been doing. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Can anybody be foolish enough to go on rejecting this witness still? If you do reject it, you're left in your ignorance, you're left as a man, you're left in your impotence. You can try to understand from now until you're dead and you'll know no more than you know at this moment. Philosophy throughout the centuries has been trying, but the world by wisdom knew not God and it never will. It had tried in its greatest men before Christ ever came. 
And you'll never know. You'll never understand. There is only one thing to do. It is to realize your total inability. It is to look into the face of this person who says, I have come down from heaven, from the Father whom I know and whose Son I am. I have come to tell you. There's only one thing to do, I say, and that is to believe him, to believe his message, to surrender our lives to him, and to ask him to deal with us, to save us, and to reconcile us, and to introduce us to God. No man hath ascended into heaven, no man ever will. But the Son of God became the Son of men, that sons of men might become the sons of God. He came into the midst of our grief and shame and loss in order to do for us what none other could do. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look at him. I pray you, I beseech you, look at him. Look at this man, as it were, who stands before you and says, I speak that which I know. I testify to that which I have seen. I have come down from him. Very well, get down on your knees before him. Look up at him and say, My Lord and my God, take me. Save me. Give me the blessed knowledge of God and his salvation. And if you do so, he will not refuse you. He will receive you. And you will know God and become a child of God. And you will go through life and through death triumphantly. And then go on to be with God for all eternity. Amen.